I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. This episode is part of the silver lining theme in which I will try to explore some of the bright side of the COVID-19 crisis with some of my wisest friends. Today's guest was named by the American Management Association as one of America's top 50 leaders to watch. John Spence is recognized as one of the top business thought leaders and leadership development experts in the world. He made a career of making very complex, awesomely simple. John is an author, a business consultant, a workshop facilitator, a keynote speaker, and an executive coach with a long list of clients of Fortune 500 companies and small businesses alike. John, I cannot thank you enough for being with me today. It is such a pleasure and such an opportune time, I have to say, because everyone is almost losing sleep about how the world is changing in the current time. So thank you for giving the time. I know you're a very, very busy man. It's my honor. It's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. So John, tell me a bit about that idea of the world changing. We all know that COVID-19 is going to be making the world a very different place. In your view, from a business leadership, business and leadership point of view, what what do you think is going to happen? Well, it's going to make some profound changes. I think probably the one that we're experiencing right now is the fact that, as some of my clients say, I went from having 200 employees to 200 offices. (laughs) Everything has gone virtual. And really what happened is what would have taken about three to five years to make a transition, we did in three months. We found out we have a strong digital platform and people are more flexible than we thought. And it's now forced us to work in a completely different way, to collaborate in a different way. And it's fascinating because through this, one of the things I found out as a business leaders, we're used to fixing stuff. Get that out the door, fix this problem, finish that project. You can't fix this. Uh, (laughs) You have to adapt. And then another thing that was really shocking to me is there were so many great companies that the owners were doing everything right. They were involved with their employees. They had great products, great services. Everything was really, really exactly the way it should be. And they were out of business in a week. Correct. They saw their revenues drop to zero. And the hard part of that is it's not fair. But what I always tell them is it's not your fault. It's always, what did I do to lose my business? So what would you tell someone like this? I know quite a few people that are in that space. I'm very engaged in the entrepreneurship space. And the reality is there's no point. They're just out of business. And so what would you tell them? Would you tell them to shut down gracefully and then give it another try? Would you tell them to forget it, go find a job? That's an interesting question. I think it depends on the kind of business you're in that if you can't make the changes necessary or financially you can't carry it now, but it will be viable again in six months or a year, 18 months, then maybe shutting it down now and saving money and reopening it later. I see a lot of businesses like my own. I mean, my job used to be to get on planes and fly all over the world and talk to groups of 5,000, 10,000 people. I likely will not be doing that again for at least two years. I had to change my entire business model in a week. Yeah. 
for two years, we're not doing that again, is your prediction? My prediction is I will not be getting on an airplane and traveling to give a speech to 10,000 people, minimum 18 months. Yeah, mine too. Yeah, you know, my life was very similar on my happiness work. And I also don't even want to, believe it or not. I mean, there is a point to go to some of those, but the rate at which you and I were doing it, that was crazy, really. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. So we talked about business owners. What do they need to do? It may be that you close down. Uh, it may be that you change your business model dramatically. It may be that you look at a different arena that opens up and close down one and immediately go into something new. But if you're going to try to survive this, there's a couple things I'll give advice around. Number one is figure out the stuff you can control and take massive control of that and look at all the stuff you can't control and completely let go of that. I think what happens is a lot of people get really obsessed about all these things that are happening, the politics and the economy and on and on and on and on. You can't do anything about that. You can't do anything about the pandemic. You can't do anything about the economy. You can't do anything about the quarantine. You can't do anything about politics. And every minute you spend obsessing on that is a minute you're not spending on something you could control. Your health, your mental well-being, your frame of mind, things like that. And then from a business standpoint, we were discussing this before you started the podcast. I'm 56. I've been through the Great Recession and 9-11 and some other stuff. And I was coaching a lot of companies during the recession. And I had a couple of pieces of advice for them. Number one was take amazing care of your employees. They're the ones who are going to keep you in business. Tell them you appreciate them, love on them, celebrate wins, big and small, but really, really tell your people how important they are to your business. Number two is in support of that, now is the time for your company to do the best work you've ever done, to create the best products, the best services in the history of your business. It's got to be spectacular, which leads to number three is whoever owns the voice of the customer owns the marketplace. Right now, you got to get really, really close to your customers. Your customers and your employees will remember for years after this how you treated them right now. And if you're close to your customer and you're delivering amazing products and services, they become your sales force. It's really hard to sell right now, but referrals will bring in business. So basically, your customers become your sales force. And then the last thing is focus on your financials, but don't freak out. Keep an eye on it. But don't obsess about that either. <laughs> How do you not freak out? I mean, in reality, there is no predictability whatsoever. My advice has been is to sit down now or as much as you can when you're unemotional and start running the numbers and the scenarios now and figuring out what decisions you're going to have to make when you hit certain levels. So trip wires, red flags, things. Like but the key to me is, is, Think it through before it happens so you don't make an emotional decision. You don't do a knee-jerk thing and make a really bad financial decision in a moment of fear or anxiety that rather you sat down and said, where do I need to be in three months, six months, 18 months? I help a lot of my clients with strategy, strategic planning, things like that. It used to be that we'd look two years out maybe. Now it's 90 days. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of my clients are starting to think six months out barely because they just have no idea i mean some are still at the 40 days out so it's dramatically changed the pace of business as well one of the things i love about your work john is the idea that you don't really think of leaders as leaders in the business only so a leader is not just someone that shows up at work 
and leads at work, a leader is an overall leader. You always say in public speeches that the world needs more leaders. And where I come from, the culture where I was raised in, in the Middle East, in the Islamic background, basically says that everyone is a leader. Everyone has some kind of responsibility. You know, if you're a parent, you're a leader for your children. If you're in a community, then you need to be a leader by setting examples in that community and so on and so forth. I wanted to ask you, what is leadership? In situations like this, what colors should show? This is a great question because everybody who teaches leadership, and I wrote a book on leadership, has a different definition. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, everybody, and you know, they can motivate people, do this, whatever. My definition is fairly simplistic, as most of my stuff is. To me, a great leader is someone who is a living example of what they hope their followers will one day become. I love that statement. So in this time, this is kindness and love and being calm and courageous and looking, whether it's as a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, a business owner. One thing you have to remember that as a leader at any level, you live under a microscope. People watch what you do. They hear what you say. So everything is a word we use called symbol management. It's the idea of a, somebody that walks across the parking lot, sees a piece of trash, picks it up, puts it in the garbage can. That's a symbol of their character. So everything you do as a leader is a symbol of your values, of your character. And the goal, to me at least, is to hold yourself at some sort of a level that you would hope that other people would aspire to act like you, think like you, be not exactly, but to be a person of character, integrity, honesty, love, things of those nature. I sign up for that all the time because of my personal career and when people asked me about what to do in certain situations, I'd always ask, do you want to be a leader or do you want to be a manager? Honestly, because there are ways you can tell people to do things as a manager and, and people will do it, right? And uh, you can be a good manager, but you will not be a leader. To be a leader, you have to do what you just said, which is, I will be the example and I will move forward passionately to the place where we should be. And because my followers aspire to be like me, they'll come along, they'll follow through. And, and I think the idea of that servant leader is that I actually would want our community to see that, whatever the community is, whether it's my little family or my neighborhood or the job I'm doing, I want them to see that example and follow it. So I started by saying everyone is a leader, but that doesn't make everyone a leader. As a matter of fact, we have so many more managers than we have leaders, don't you think? I've run several companies in my career and do a lot of work, obviously, with other companies. And here's what I've found. Being a leader is really hard because you have to be better than you actually are. You've got to hold yourself to a really high standard of behavior and of integrity and of honesty and transparency. And you have to do things that are challenging and difficult, even if you don't want to do them. You don't have the right, in my opinion, to have a really bad day, to, to be dismissive of people, to treat people without respect. Even if you have difficulties with them, you still have to show them love and respect for who they are as an individual. So it's interesting. I did a big research study a couple of years ago. I went out and talked to more than 10,000 high potential employees at top companies around the world. These are what I call voluntary employees. They can work anywhere they want to work. You know, they stay at a company because they want to, not because they have to. If they quit, they'd have a job at the competition tomorrow. So I asked them, why do you work where you work? The single biggest reason was I work for a leader I trust, respect, and admire. Above everything else, there were six things total. The number one thing was the leadership. 88% of people that quit their job don't quit the job, don't quit the hours, don't quit the pay. They don't quit the workload. They quit their immediate supervisor, I will call not leader, their manager or supervisor. That's what they quit, not the company. 
Can I ask you on that voluntary employee thing? I think that's really, really interesting. Huh? I speak from the concept of leadership is not only in business. So if I'm a leader to my wonderful daughter, Aya, Aya is a voluntary employee in that case. Aya can actually, I mean, Aya is now 25. She can completely go like, you know what? Screw you. I don't care anymore and leave me, right? Absolutely. Everyone is a voluntary employee in an interesting way. So it is interesting to take those as a model and say, while those are really the ones that you want to keep, there are others that you may think are easier to replace, but the whole process of replacing and having the environment where people want to leave all the time is basically the stupidest thing you can ever do. And the idea, yes. the, the idea of respect, I love that. I love that you use the word respect. So how's that established? How do you build that? I'm always looking at companies and I do a lot of research, a lot of reading. You and I were chatting. I read about a hundred business books here and I have for about 30 years, but I also get to climb around in companies. One of the new models I'm looking at, it originally established, I believe at Google, is what people look for in their job right now. And this is stuff I've been talking about for a year, but boy, did it come up recently. So the first thing is stability or safety. I want to know that my job is safe. I'm safe, that I've got a stable environment that I'm emotionally, physically, psychologically safe. I can say things, I can take risks, no one's going to ridicule me. And that idea of safety and stability is probably now at the very, very top. Of course. And in the current times, it's the absolute top, right? Yeah. It's look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We're down to food and shelter right now. <laughs> yeah. But number two, and this is, it was really fascinating to me, is the idea of dignity. And the interesting thing is you can't give someone else dignity. What you give them is respect, autonomy, and trust. You say, I trust your competence. I trust you as an individual. I respect you. You're an important person to me. And I'm going to let you go do your work because I know that it's going to be great. Respect, trust, autonomy. Then the person feels a sense of dignity. And then they treat other people with respect and trust and autonomy. And you, know, you could put respect in there, but I love the idea of dignity giving someone a sense of dignity in the work they do. And then the last one, it was SDP, is purpose. The, and we're seeing this big, not only through business up till now, but through the pandemic is, do I work for a company that has a noble purpose? Do I feel connected to something bigger than me, someplace where I'm making a difference in the world? And those are the three things, at least recently, that I've looked at that top, top employees, really actually all employees look for is a sense of safety, stability, dignity and purpose. In one of your talks, you called this not SDP, but you called it SBA. SBA, yeah. Safety, belonging, and appreciation. And I was really- You are amazing. I'm a very good student and I freaking love your work. So that's why. <laughs> so the idea of appreciation, actually, I bring it back to both examples, at work and at home and in relationships and so on. Huh? So the idea of appreciation is quite puzzling huh? because if someone's not performing really well, it's hard to show them appreciation. But if you don't show them appreciation, you're not creating the environment that allows them to perform really well. And I want to actually use children as an example for that. So let's not talk about companies and work. Let's talk about our kids. There is a Western way of raising kids, which is all about self-esteem and giving them confidence and so on, which is a bit too much appreciation for doing nothing sometimes. <laughs> right? And then there is the other side of the world where we just used to tell our kids, it's like, unless you get an A+, you don't have the right to talk to me, right? So <laughs> where do you stand between those two? What a scream. 
from a kid's standpoint, absolutely from everybody. I mean, everyone wants to feel appreciated for who they are, what they've done, the contribution they've made. And again, when you look at research, most people in business and probably in life too, they want some sort of genuine, honest, sincere praise or appreciation about once a week. Once a week. Just to keep them going. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, seven to 10 days. And I sometimes talk to managers, not leaders that say, my people don't do anything that deserves appreciation once a week, not even once a month, maybe once a year. And that's why you go talk to their people and they don't like their manager. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's like obvious. <laughs> it never says anything except for complaints or, you know, she never shows me any appreciation. And it doesn't have to be like you're the best in the world. It just says, thank you for doing that. I appreciate you getting back to me quickly. I appreciate you always smile when you come in the office. You just light the place up. It really is helpful to all of us. So yeah. look, yeah, I years ago, again, when I left one of the companies I was running, I went to work as a stand-in CEO for another company. And when I got there, the employees said, you know, what's your vision? Where are you going to take the company? And I said, I don't have one. <laughs> I'm only going to be here for a few months. I'm holding the place together until we get a new CEO. But I said, I can tell you, though, we're going to make this the best place you ever work while I'm here. And the challenge I said is I want to create a culture of catching people doing things right. That's so beautiful. I want every one yeah. of you to come in every day. And the challenge is find one person in the office to go show genuine gratitude, genuine appreciation, catch them doing something right and thank them for it. I said, here's what's going to happen. Every day you're going to come in and catch a couple people doing things right and they're going to be happy. And that also means that everybody else in the company is trying to catch you do something right. That's amazing. You're going to feel good about that. Isn't that easy? Huh? It turns the whole coin upside down. Because when you really think about it, yes, sometimes we're not doing great, but there must be something we're doing right. And if you as a leader are looking for those things to show appreciation for, it sort of gives you the credibility to ask for the other things to go further, to improve on the other things. But on that same token, actually, you also talk about the idea that the leader himself should be very good at what they do. So it's not just the privilege of the leader to judge the performance of others. The phrase you use is, I'm good at what I do and I do it because I really care about you is what makes a leader. Can you talk a bit about that? What really makes a leader? I'm so impressed by the, all the homework you've done. So that comes from a model that I created around building trust. And it's around the two ideas of competence and concern. And if you've got someone with high competence, low concern, they're really, really good at what they do, but they're gruff and rude and condescending. The word I use there is respect. I respect their competence, but I don't trust them as my leader. The next one is low competence, low concern. This is not working out very well. This isn't going to turn out well. <laughs> exactly. It's like really, really look at you. <laughs> yeah. I'm incompetent and I don't care about you. That's a winning combination there. But love me anyway. Trust me anyway. <laughs> and the next one is high concern but low competence. A nice person, we get along great. I'm friendly, we're buddies, but I'm terrible at my job, which means everybody else has to do it for me. So from a leadership standpoint, we're looking for is high competence, high concern. You got to be really good at what you do. Actually, too good in two areas. Got to be really good at what you do, your job and at your leadership skills. And it all has to be focused on helping and supporting and taking care of the people you work with. They don't work for you. You work together on a team with them. Yeah. Can I ask about that? Because when you say the servant leader, it almost feels like the leader is working for the team. It's not the other way around. That's a great insight. That's I've no one's ever put it that way. But I'll oh, come on. As a great leader, that's what you do. It's your job to come in and support your people, help them, 
make them successful. You're only successful if your people are successful. <laughs> it's your job to work really, really hard for them every day. You do work for them. And in the end of the day, it, it helps you be successful. But your job every day is to make other people successful. Make them greatly. Yeah. In my years at Google, these were really the very last years of really having to run a big team and so on. And I used to have a very straightforward statement. I would say, I work for you. You're responsible for the business. So I'm responsible for you for making sure that everything that you need is available. And then you get the business done. And if you get the business done, I'll be doing my job really passionately because you're amazing. So I'll really try to serve you. But if you don't get the business done, then we have a problem because someone has to get it done, right? And I think that's, <laughs> so, so because I'm not doing it. So, so, you know, so, you that's know. not my job. My job is to make sure you do your job. Absolutely. And I think that's really helped me because basically I would spend a bit of time trying to make sure that my team is doing amazing and then the rest of the time pretending that I'm useful. And, you know, when you, when you do it that way, things work well. Tell me a little bit about AQ, however. So you spoke about EQ and IQ, right? IQ is that intelligence, analytical competence and so on. EQ is that emotional intelligence. But then you, you also talk about adaptability and the idea that a leader in today's world is one that has to be almost like a change expert. Yeah, we looked at it and you watched the TED talk I did on this. IQ is competence, EQ is your, like you said, the, what we're seeing now though is that AQ, your adaptability quotient is probably, and especially with what just happened to it, as, or, as important or more important than the other two. You still have to be competent and be able to make genuine connections with other people. But if you're not fast, agile, nimble, adaptable, then there is no way you will survive. And in studying this, I figured out that there's a couple of things that look for in an adaptable person. First one is resilience, the ability to bounce back from setbacks and failures and just keep going back and saying, you know, I'm gonna, it's another word you use here is grit. They're just can't beat them down, they're resilient. Number two is flexibility. And this is a really tough one, and we're all being forced into this right now, which is you got to try new ways of doing things. You've got to be able to bend without breaking. I like to say you got to be willing to try on new ideas to see how they fit and do that with enthusiasm, to be excited about doing it a different way. What was it? It was exploitation versus exploration. Exploitation is when I take advantage of the stuff I've always done. I exploit my past knowledge, and I go to the things that have always worked exploration is I'm going to try something completely new. The word around that would be flexibility. The third one is learning drive. It's being insatiably curious, constantly wanting to learn more things, taking new information, new ideas, which allows you to be flexible and resilient because you're constantly learning new things. And then the last one is mindset. And it's sort of realistically optimistic. It's I understand there's difficult, bad, troubling things happening but I'm never going to lose faith that I will persevere in the end. Hold on, this is so much to talk about. So when we talk about, you called it exploitation and exploration, isn't there a place for both? I mean, shouldn't we have an idea from the past and an idea from the future, a, a bit of experience and a bit of adventure, if you want? Isn't this the way it should be? Stunning, stunning, stunning question. Yes, and here's the way I look at it. You have to be able to be willing to change anything, but you also have to be able to understand there's some things that never change. There are fundamentals in business and leadership that no matter how much things change in the pandemic or the economic turmoil, 
that honesty, integrity, customer focus, culture. We're not going to experiment with those, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't mess with that. Hey, guys, I have, I have an idea. Let's ignore honesty for the next few weeks. See how clients react to that, right? <laughs> that doesn't work well, very well. So, and it's the same way in our lives. You know, there's certain things that I can embrace change and revel in change and be very agile and adaptable, but I'm going to try to always be pure to my values to be a person of integrity, to be a person of respect and love and treating people well. It doesn't matter what happens in the world. Those sort of things never change. Let me take you to the next one then. The third one you said was that insatiable love for knowledge, for learning. I mean, you're 56, man. Come on. Like, what learning? Oh, geez. Here's what I've learned. At 56 years old and having read 3,000 plus business books and worked in several hundred companies, I don't know anything. There you go. That's my man. That's why I love him. <laughs> I wake up every day and go, I, there's so much more I need to learn. Now, I'll, I'll tell you one other thing that I think is a strategy idea is like a lot of people go, John, why do you read 150 books on leadership? Doesn't it get redundant? And I say, absolutely. And that's great. And they go, what do you mean? I go, because you understand the pattern that when you study something for years and you look at it deeply and you look at different companies, different people, different experts, different thought leaders, and it all starts to line up and be the same, then you have pulled out the main thread of the idea there. And now you've got that fundamental pattern that you can use to understand the industry, the business or the person better. So pattern recognition to me is one of the highest forms of expertise. And that's why reading 100 books on something, it's redundant, but it helps me understand the topic at a very deep level and see clearly the pattern in that particular arena. I'm totally with you on that. And by the way, the smartest people I've ever worked with and the smartest machines I've ever worked with were all machines that were all about pattern recognition. It was about reaffirmation of something through several occurrences of it. But there's also that gold nugget, and I'm sure you get that every now and then of like, oh, that one is new. Somehow, I'm like you, I'm a huge book lover. I consume books in all formats. I'm a huge knowledge lover in general. I watch lots of TED Talks and lots of videos and so on. And there is every now and then there is that feeling of like, whoa, look at this. This new thing that was said here is a massive gold nugget. And you combine it with all of the other stuff that you know. And even then you will come up with more and more ideas yourself. Well, you've just struck on, there's five levels of, I believe it's five. I'll see as I speak, if I remember the number right. But there's a foundation of being a great strategic thinker. So at the foundation of being a great strategic thinker is strong business acumen, doing the studying, the reading, the learning, taking in the information, the knowledge. Then, and you put this beautifully, you combine that with your personal experience, what you've been doing for five or 10 or 15 years, the companies you've worked for, the leaders you've worked for. So you put those two together, what we would call it is the adjacent new. You put those two that all the study and your experience, put them together which then leads you to recognizing a pattern. And that pattern leads to what you just said, strategic insight. Now I have, I've watched the pattern and I've got a start, and that's where I get competitive advantage in the marketplace. I see a pattern before anybody else. I understand that I get that insight a week or a month or a year before anybody, and that allows me to get advantage of the marketplace. And then the last one is disciplined execution. All that strategic thinking and insight is useless if you can't execute on it. 
So John, if you don't mind me being personal for a second, I adore intelligence. And you're the kind of person that constantly uses numbers. You have a list you know, of numbers for everything. You're clearly able to take big complex concepts and simplify them into the process and how you go through those things. This is IQ, so how is EQ? My IQ versus my EQ? Yeah. I used to have like zero EQ. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> <laughs> really an absence of any, uh, almost like a psychopath. Now I'm just keep my wife tells me you weren't that bad. Every wife tells her husband that, so don't worry about that. <laughs> I'll come home and she'll say, like, did you like the flowers that somebody sent me? I'm like, what flowers? I don't know. I don't look for that. That's not important to me. Yeah. But like, or she'll say, hey, you had, you know, spend time with Mo. Does he have a family? I'm like, I never asked. Why the hell should I care? But, uh, <laughs> it's like, whatever, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm happy about that. Now, though, I've really worked on it a lot, and I've gotten a lot better. And now it's, I see it as a strength in my life and something that's brought more vibrance and enjoyment to my life by actually going out and understanding how important it is to connect with other people and how fun it is to learn about them and how meaningful it is to create a relationship. I'm also a massive introvert. So, which is hilarious for somebody that you know stands up and talks to tens of thousands of people. I don't really like people. <laughs> I prefer to be alone in my hotel room. But I'm learning at this age that it's important to make more personal connections. And I'm going to jump off on a tangent here for one second. One of the things I think we need to understand right now during the pandemic, or at any time, but especially right now, that when people face what they perceive as negative change, they go through the same, it's a grieving cycle, the same grieving cycle they do as if someone close to them died. Because right now, people are grieving the loss of their normal life. Correct. They're grieving the loss of their freedom out of their houses. They're grieving the loss, potentially, of their job or of their company. So as leaders and as friends and fathers and mothers and everything else, we need to understand that people are going through some very, very emotionally painful things right now. And we have to have a lot of compassion and understanding that's the right thing. You have to go through that process to get to the other side. And there's steps to it. It's you start with stability, then you go to immobilization, which we were at a couple of months ago when this first happened. Then you go into denial, and we've still got some people that pretend this isn't happening. They're protesting against it. Then you get anger, which we're starting to see around the world now. People getting really angry about what's happening and being at home and all the lockdown and all that sort of stuff. Then it goes to bargaining. We're starting to see that in the United States. Well, maybe let, we'll let a couple of restaurants open and maybe we'll let a few people on the beach kind of trying to bargain with a virus, don't think that's going to work so good. <laughs> then you go into depression, which I think a lot of us, me included, are on the edge of now, which is something you really, really need to look out for in your family, your friends, and your coworkers. And then after that, you start to test a new way of living, and then you get back to stability. And it isn't linear. People go back and forth. But I think all of us need to realize right now that people are really struggling, and you've got to be not only do you have to be there for them intellectually and help them as a business, but you really got to be there for them emotionally more so than ever. Yeah. And that idea of compassion and connection, really, as you said, I was sort of leading you into that question. Something you can learn. It's something that you can choose to have, to be able to say, I want to have empathy to feel how others are feeling through this. I want to have the compassion for them. And I have to tell you of many, many conversations I had on the COVID-19 and the lockdown issues, the comparison, the analogy to grief is so insightful. And when you really think about it and you see it within yourself, I'm sure everyone listening 
uh, is actually going to be looking at their own five stages of grief, right? At the beginning, you deny it, and then you sort of like get angry at it, and then you, you start to bargain, and then you... It's only when you get to acceptance that you start to actually do something about it, right? You start to really live despite its presence, if you want. There's two things that are especially hard about what we're going through right now. First of all, it was very sudden. Totally unexpected as well, yeah. Yeah, unexpected, sudden. Number two is there's no clear end date. So there's nothing to anticipate per se. You know what, John? So insightful. This is exactly what the death of a loved one is. It's so sudden and there is no end date. Really, there is no expectation of it ever reversing. And that's what people sometimes feel when they go through tough times. Have you ever heard of the thing called the Stockdale Paradox? No, what is that? The highest ranking military officer in the United States uh, was a Navy officer during Vietnam War, got taken prisoner. He was the highest ranking that got taken prisoner. They sent him to the Hanoi Hilton. He was there for almost eight years, beaten pretty much every day. No expectation whatsoever that he'd ever live through to get out of it. But he did. And they asked him how, and he said, here is what you have to do to get through something like that. You must look at the most brutal facts of your current reality. Don't flinch. Just look directly at them without ever losing faith that you will persevere in the end, no matter how long it takes. And he said the ones that died were the optimists. He said, you know, one said, oh, it's, you know, I'll be out by Easter for sure. You know, and now I'll be out by Mother's Day or I'll be out by Thanksgiving or I'll be out by. And when Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter went by and another year and another year, they just gave up hope. And his thing was, is I have no idea when I'm going to get out of here, but I will. But that is optimism. Optimism is I know regardless of the time. As a matter of fact, that's realistic optimism. It's like if I keep at it, I will persevere. I will come out of it. I will thrive out of it and it will turn around. And that's actually what I tell a lot of people about the situation we're in is that there were viral outbreaks before in history of humanity. We did not have the technology that we have today. And by doing the right things, they ended. That's optimism. The idea is this is not easy in any possible way, but as we go through it, it will end as long as we continue to do the right way. Yeah. I don't know what the lesson's going to be, and it's probably going to be years before I understand it, but I live in Florida in the United States, and we have hurricanes. And about, oh gosh, it's got to be almost 30 years ago, we had a big giant hurricane come through Miami, Florida, and I lived in Miami on the water. It's called Hurricane Andrew, and it wiped out the city, and I lost everything I owned in the world. My house, my cars, I, I escaped out in a truck and went in, inland, and then I had my house gone, everything I owned in the world gone. I had to live in my truck for four months. I had to live in an abandoned apartment with a hole in the roof with rain coming through for another three months. And as I look back now, it's one of the best things that ever happened to me because it taught me it's just stuff. That it, when everything you own in the world is taken away and it is not coming back, period. I mean, I had insurance, but photos, things like that, never see them again. You just put your head down and say, okay, that's fine. So I have very little attachment to stuff now. I like my stuff, but if it all went away, as long as my wife and my dogs were okay, if my house burned to the ground today, there would be no impact on me at all. Because I just say, well, it's happened before. We can get up and fix this. So I don't know what the lesson is going to be from this. I'm like you. I believe that when we will look back, we will say this was one of the best things that ever happened to us.
I believe that too. I just don't know how long that's going to be. I am, again, optimistic. I think it, regardless of how long it takes, and hopefully it will be over soon, it's going to be over. Uh, John, I don't know what to tell you. You're one of my favorite people. You need some new friends then. <laughs> John, tell me, if people want to reach out and find you, where they should look? My website, which is pretty straightforward, it's johnspence.com. That's easy. That's a very imaginative. I don't know how I came up with that. John, I really can't thank you enough. This has been a wonderful and enlightening conversation. Thanks you so much for your time. Oh, it's been my pleasure. It's been an honor. This was wonderful. And for all of you who joined us, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for MoGaudet, SlowMo, Soul for Happy, or One Billion Happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, there is always time to slow down. Until next time, stay happy.